Five. Continuing our study here through the book of Matthew. Lord willing, time willing, we'll do all of Matthew chapter 25 this morning. And as you guys are getting into your seats, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for this. Just a nice, crisp, beautiful fall morning. Thank you for that. And just this week of Thanksgiving. Help us now just to truly seek you, to learn of you, to grow in you. And what we learned today, to take it, put it into practice, and be a light and a witness and always say and do in your name. Amen. We've been working our way through the book of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And the last couple weeks, we've been doing some studies on end times. Now, the background from this comes from Matthew 24. If you just want to jump back to verse 1 of Matthew 24. It says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to him, Do you not see all these things? As surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, the temple at this time was being remodeled by Herod. It was this beautiful temple. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. It was an 80-year remodeling project. So as the disciples are walking past this temple, they're kind of ooing and eyeing over the temple. And Jesus stops them and says, guys, you got your focus wrong. The focus is not on the building. This building's all going to be torn down. Well, this makes the disciples start to think. So verse 3 of chapter 24. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they say, Okay, Jesus, tell us. What does this mean? What does it represent? What does the end of the world look like? So in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus does this. Now, remember, we're in the last week of Christ's life. Last week of Christ's life. We're in the final days here of his life. He's doing his final teachings to the disciples. And one of the final teachings he wants to do is to teach them about end times. As we mentioned two weeks ago when we first started our study in Matthew 24, we talked about how there's extremes on end times. There's the extreme of that's all you think about, talk about, and you're so focused on Antichrist and the return of Jesus that you're really not also focusing on seeing the gospel spread and serving the body of Christ. The other extreme is, yeah, I don't care, I'm not going to be here anyway, and you kind of stick your head in the sand. No, the biblical approach is to have a working knowledge of what these things mean and represent. We have timeline sheets back there. We've been doing slides the last couple weeks to help you have an understanding of this. So two weeks ago, we did verses 1 through 14 of Matthew 24, and we talked about how this is the pre-labor, the birth pains. That's what we're going through right now. Last week, we started in verse 15 and did the end of Matthew 24, and we talked about an event called the tribulation period. If you look at your timeline sheets, it's a time of God's judgment on this earth. Now, this week, we're going to get into Matthew 25, our last teaching here on end times. And this last teaching is three parables. Remember, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. As you read through these parables, you kind of get the story. But Jesus wants us to dig a little deeper, study a little bit more, and see the spiritual meaning behind this earthly story. And these three parables are basically telling us, take this information you have now about end times. And how are you going to let it affect your life? Because it's one thing to know it. It's one thing to understand it. But it needs to impact how you live. We are called to go out and change the world through Jesus Christ by being a light and a witness. That's what we want to do. Be a difference maker in where we live and where we act. All of that. So with that being said, how do we take this and apply it to our lives now? First one, Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we've got to stop here a little bit because you need to understand a little bit of how marriages were done 2,000 years ago. 
2,000 years ago, if you are the young boy, four, five, six, maybe seven years old, and there's a neighbor family near you, and they have a young girl, four, five, six, seven years old, the parents would get together and say, look, I have a little boy. Hey, I have a little girl. They need to get married. So at four, five, six, or seven, you are now engaged. Now, you're engaged. Now, engaged 2,000 years ago does not mean what we think of engagement today. Engaged 2,000 years ago, you were spoken for from a very young age. The plan is for you to marry this neighbor girl. Now, as time goes on and you get to be in your teens, you go to the next stage, which is called betrothal. That's where Mary and Joseph were, if you remember the Christmas story there. Betrothal is past engagement, and you're basically married, but you haven't had a oneness yet in marriage. You're not living together, but the plan is for you to get married and to be married very soon. Now, that betrothal period could last maybe a year or so. Now, it's during the betrothal period that the man would go prepare his house for his future bride. And he would go build a house. And as he is building the house, people would see, hey, look, he's building the house. Guess what? Marriage is happening pretty soon. Oh, more progress is happening pretty soon. And as you would walk by, you'd see the house getting finished and getting done. And you would know the marriage is coming soon. But you would not know the time, date, or hour. You would just know it's coming soon. And then when the house got done, and then the father of the groom went and inspected the house and said it was good, he would send his son to go get his bride. And then they would have the marriage. It's not like today where people send out invitations and their marriage is going to happen in 2022 or something like that. You have to plan ahead. It was very somewhat unexpectedly, but you knew it was coming. Now you see the spiritual picture of this. In John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a house for you. And guess what? When my father says it's time, I'm going to go get my bride. That's us, the church. That's the rapture. And so you see the picture that's going on. So when Jesus uses these examples, we sit here 2,000 years later and we say, okay, this is kind of foreign to me. But to the audience that Jesus was speaking to, they would get it. They would understand it. Seeing the house being built, waiting for the father to send the son to go grab the bride. So you knew it was coming, but you didn't know exactly when. So this parable, these bridesmaids see it's coming. They see it's happening very soon and they're waiting Verse 2, now five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, as surely I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. You see the picture here. The groom coming for the bride is a picture of Christ coming and being ready and being prepared. Now, there's a couple points we need to talk about here. We know the season. We know the time frame. But we don't know the specific moment. Be prepared. That's what it's trying to tell us. Now, oil. Oil in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit. So, the five bridesmaids that had oil means they had a relationship with the Lord. That's the symbolicness of it. The five that didn't, did not. They did not have a relationship. When you get saved and you get born again, the Bible makes this abundantly clear. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. It's an amazing idea. God himself comes up and takes up residence in you. Your body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to Corinthians. Now, that's a very encouraging thought that God is always with you. It's also a very convicting thought. Whatever you say, think, do that no one else knows, 
The Lord knows because he's with you all the time. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. That is the oil. Now, when you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you're not saved. The Holy Spirit says it's a claim on you where God says you are now my child. So Holy Spirit saved, no Holy Spirit not saved. So these five that did not have the oil, did not have the Holy Spirit, they realized the end is coming. Get ready quickly. I need oil. I need a relationship with God. I need Jesus Christ. Hey, you, I want some of your oil. Guess what? You can't pass your salvation on to someone else. They have to want it personally. They have to want it themselves. Moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, you can't make your kids get saved. You can't make your grandkids get saved. You can point them towards Christ. You can set a godly example. But they have to want it to go deeper. I learned in 20 years of being a pastor, I can't make somebody want Jesus Christ. I can point them in the right direction. I can encourage them. I can pray for them. I can disciple them. They have to want a relationship with the Lord. And so these gals right here, these bridesmaids that didn't have the oil, give it to us. You have to want it. You have to go. You have to seek that relationship with Christ on your own. They chose not to. They weren't ready. So what else do you see here? Verse 11, Lord, Lord, opened us. But he answered and said, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. That reminds me of Matthew chapter 7. Where Jesus said, many will come to me and said, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not heal in your name? And Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. Now that word for know in the Greek means to know personally, to have a relationship. Not just know of them, of course Jesus knows of them. But he does not know them in a relationship form of salvation. And this parable is telling us, be ready. Look at verse 13, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So our first parable here, salvation relationship. Be ready because you do not know when it's coming and be prepared to know Christ and to know him personally. This is why we call it a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You personally have to have that oil, that Holy Spirit in your life through coming to know Christ. So personally knowing him, salvation. Now that we know him, let's go to the next parable that teaches us what are we supposed to do that we know him. Verse 14, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now know how business worked back then, 2,000 years ago. Nowadays, today, if you're running a business or you have responsibilities, you leave and guess what? You can't get away from work. They can call you. They can text you. They can email you. You can get on a flight and get across the country in a matter of hours. Okay, 2,000 years ago, it didn't work. If there was a business deal this man needed to do, he could be traveling for days, maybe weeks. No one could get a hold of him. He could potentially be gone for months. So he takes his servants, and he says, I'm putting you in charge of the business that's going on at home. This is a biblical term that's called stewardship. You are in charge of my possessions. They're mine, but I'm putting you in charge of them. So he takes three servants. He gives one five, gives one two, gives one one. And he gives them a talent. Now, the problem is when we hear that word talent, we think of the English word talent, an ability. The word talent literally means in the Bible, it's a measure. You could have a talent of gold, a talent of silver. It's a measurement. You have a bag of gold, a bag of silver, some of your translations may say. So he's leaving them with this money, and he's saying, keep my business going while I am gone, and I will be back. So what happens? Verse 16. Then he who received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. 
Okay, simple return. The one that had five got five more. The one that had two got two more. The one that had one did nothing. Buried it. Did nothing with it. What's the Lord trying to tell us? He's saying that I want 100% effort. I want 100% rate of return from you. The one that had five got five back. The one that had two got two back. He goes, I want you to give 100% with what I give you. Some of you may have been given more spiritual responsibility. Some of you may have been given more talents. And God expects more out of you. Some of you maybe not as much. But the Lord says, I still want 100% effort from you. That's what I'm looking for. You know, if I take my kids and I ask them to go downstairs and clean my basement or to go clean their bedroom, my 11-year-old, I expect more than for my 4-year-old. I do. So if the 11-year-old comes to me and says, Dad, he didn't do as much. Well, of course he didn't do as much. You're seven years older. I expect more out of you. You have more responsibility. So the 4-year-old may go down and do not as good a job or may try and it may not look as good, but he still gave 100% effort. The 11-year-old will get more done, but I'm still looking for 100% effort. Some of you may have been given more abilities from the Lord and you have more responsibility. Some of you maybe not as much. It's not a comparison of two verses five. That's not the point of this parable. The parable is saying what you have been given, go at it 100% effort full. That's what the Lord is asking of you. Because look at what happens, verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Please note verse 21 and 23. They get the same reward. Because they both gave 100% effort. Well, that's not fair. The guy that had five got five. The guy that had two got two. No, you're missing the point. They both gave 100% effort, so their reward is the same. Please note what the reward is. Well done, good and faithful servant. Not eloquent servant, not brilliant servant, not handy servant. You were just faithful. Faithful in what God gave you. He just wants you to give a full effort. See, what happens is we step back and say, I can't do anything. They sing better than me. They preach better than me. They're better at running things than me. It's not about abilities. It's about being faithful with what God has given you. A hundred percent. You just do a hundred percent of what God gave you. Now, what problem is that people hear this and they say, yeah, I don't want to mess it up. So therefore, I'm not going to do anything. So what do they do? They do what the next guy did. Verse 24. Then he would receive the one talent came and said, Lord, I know you to be a hard man. Reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. I didn't do anything because I didn't want to mess it up. Has that thought ever gone through your mind? I don't want to mess it up. I say this in the most loving way possible. You're not that important. You can't mess up eternity. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine some guy standing before Jesus at the end of the age and saying, Jesus, I really wanted to have a relationship with you, but you know, when James tried to share the gospel with me, he really messed it up. I didn't get it. No, I can't mess it up. What a blessing to know. What a blessing to know that I'm not that important. 
problem is some of you feel you're that important. And I, I, I don't want to mess anything up, so I probably shouldn't serve there. I probably shouldn't talk to my neighbor. I shouldn't talk to my coworker. I shouldn't lead that study because I'm just going to cause problems. So I'm just going to take the talent. I'm just going to hide it in the ground, and everything's going to be fine and okay. No, then you're completely missing the parable. God gave you responsibility. He trusts you with that responsibility. He will empower you to do that responsibility. So therefore, you go out and do 100% effort with what God has given you. So somebody does teach better. Somebody does sing better. Somebody does serve better. It's not a comparison. They have five. They have two. They have one. You just are faithful in what God has given you. Okay, well, I'm still scared. Verse 25, and I was afraid. 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given you a spirit of fear. If you are doing something out of fear, it's not of the Lord. Or rephrase, if you are not doing something out of fear, it's not of the Lord. If the Lord has laid something in your heart and you are not doing it because you're scared or bothered or concerned about messing up, just let somebody who knows what they're doing do it better. Then you're not being faithful to what God has given you. You're walking in fear and not faith. Can you go with me to Exodus chapter 3? I heard a pastor say one time, when God wants to teach me how to swim, he just throws me in the deep end. There's a lot of truth to that. I look at what it was like when I took over out here. I took over out here. I was 21 years old. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. How did I learn how to do a funeral? I did a funeral. How did I learn how to do a wedding? Did a wedding. And I look back on some of those things. It was kind of interesting. It's, it's a long story and the details don't matter, but I traded cars with somebody for a couple days a few weeks ago and they had a tape player in their car. And so they had a tape player. That was kind of cool. And I just happened to be at the time cleaning out our basement. We're getting ready for a little bit of a remodel down there. And so I was going through a bunch of stuff and I found a tape of the first Sunday I taught as the pastor 17 years ago. I thought, oh, this is going to be cool to go in and listen to it. So I put it in the car. Oh, my, I had to shut it off. It was awful. It was just awful. <laughs> I've, been, I've been teaching Wednesday nights for 20 years, and some of you I know were there the first Wednesday I taught. God bless you for making it through two decades of that. It was awful. And you go back and you listen to that, and I'm thinking, oh, my Lord. And it's not me. It's him. See, and some of you right now, as we're hearing this message, you're like, okay, I think the Lord's laid this on my heart. I need to go talk to that coworker. I need to go talk to that neighbor. I need to go be involved in that ministry or that study. I need to do a better job ministering to my wife or my husband or my kids, but I don't want to. I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up or I just don't want to. So you hide it in the ground. Okay, let's see what happens when Moses did that. Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses has been in spiritual timeout for 40 years. If you remember the beginning of the story of Exodus, Moses had this great idea to free Israel, and he killed an Egyptian, hid the body. They found out that he did it, so he fled in the wilderness. And so now Moses is 80 years old. He is an old, broken man. And he just doesn't want to serve. So the Lord does the burning bush. Exodus chapter 3, Moses, I have a plan. I have a purpose for you. This is your calling. So Moses and God kind of go back and forth a little bit here. Verse 1, Exodus 4. Moses answered and said, but suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. Moses is saying, okay, you're sending me to Egypt to go free Israel. But what happens when they don't listen to me, God? Verse 2, so the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. He said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of the fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. He said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put it in his hand, as in the bosom again, drew it out of his bosom. Behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it would be if they did not believe you nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river, pour it on the dry land. The water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Moses said, they won't listen to me. So, hey, Moses, here's some miracles that the people have to step back and say, that has to be God. That has to be God. Verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since. You have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now Moses' excuse is, you know, the first time they're not going to believe me. My excuse this time is, I can't talk. I'm not good at public speaking. I'm not eloquent with my words. I can't put together a message. If I go share Christ with that guy, I'm going to say the wrong things. If I try to lead devotions with my family, I'm going to stumble over my words. I can't pray out loud. Whatever excuse you have. What's the Lord say now in verse 11? So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you with what you shall say. God takes down every excuse of Moses. Finally, we get to the true matter of the heart. Verse 13. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. Moses finally stops and says, just send somebody else. I don't want to do it. I don't care about the miracles. I don't care that you're going to guide my words. I just don't want to do it. Look at the response of the Lord. Verse 14. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, it's not Aaron the Levite, your brother. I know that he can speak well. God says, Moses, that's what I can't deal with. I give you the power, you choose to reject that. I give you the words, you choose to reject that. And basically now what you say is, I just don't want to. I'm going to take my one talent, and I'm going to hide it in the ground, because I just don't want to. I'll use excuses. But ultimately, Lord, I don't want to do what you've called me to do. Jump back now to Matthew 25. What is the response to the man? In verse 26, after he said, I was afraid, so I, I just put it in the ground. Here it is back, verse 26. His Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has... More will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the guy who out of fear does nothing. How is he described? Verse 26, wicked, lazy. Verse 30, unprofitable. See, it's not about who does the most. It's about doing 100% effort with what you have. Quit doing what I call comparative Christianity. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. You just have to be faithful in what you're doing. Faithful in your marriage. Faithful to your kids. Faithful in your witness at work. Faithful in whatever God has called you. That's what you're called to do. If you try to compare, well, I'm doing more than him. Well, you know what? God may have given him one talent. He's given you five. God expects more out of you. So you have to be faithful in what you're calling to do. But how many times as believers do we do this? We just sit on the sideline and don't do anything. 
We hide it in the ground. We just kind of sit there. I'm afraid. I don't want to mess it up. God says, I will empower you. I will lead you. I will guide you. Trust me. Because, see, this is very individual. This guy should not be unhappy. If you do the math real quick, he left eight talents, eight bags of gold or silver. When he came back, he had 15. That's a pretty good rate of return. But what he's bothered about is this is not a group effort. This is an individual effort. Now, what does that mean for us today? You can be involved in a church that hopefully is fruitful, out there spreading the gospel, being a witness for the Lord. And what happens is you look good because you're part of that group. But there's going to come a time and a place where Christ says, this is an individual thing. So, yeah, you're involved in that ministry that's really fruitful or you're involved in that church that's really fruitful. But what are you doing personally with me? What is your personal responsibility? It's easy to spiritually get lost in the crowd. But what are you doing as an individual? So our first parable was about a relationship, salvation, oil in your lamp. The second parable is now being a steward of what God has given you and being faithful in that. Our last passage here is what's put it into action. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now we got a little bit in end times right here. You have your outlines in front of you. I hope if not, grab one before you leave. We're talking about the second coming here. The rapture is at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period where all believers that are born again and saved are instantaneously taken out. The rapture. This starts a seven-year period called the tribulation where this is where you have the antichrist, abomination of desolation, etc. This culminates in an event called the battle of Armageddon. Now, at that event, Jesus returns. This is the second coming of Christ. Let's put that slide up real quick, Alan, just to remind us of what we've kind of been talking about here for the last couple weeks. Rapture, beginning of this tribulation period. Christ meets us in the air, us, body of Christ, born-again believers. Christ returns to take us home. We go home with Christ. Second coming, Christ steps foot on the earth. Christ returns to reign. We return with Christ. That's what we're talking about here is the second coming. In verses 31 through 34, Jesus literally comes back and rules and reigns on this earth for a thousand years. Now, I love this. You've heard me talk about this last two weeks. You know, the book of Isaiah talks about how Jesus will lead Bible studies in the temple. You will get to go meet him personally. Now, we'll be with him as the church, but the people living on this earth, Jesus will literally rule and reign as king for a thousand years. It would be an amazing thing. Now, who's left? Who are we talking about? Who are the sheep and the goats? Well, when the beginning of the tribulation period happens, the rapture takes out all believers. So it leaves all non-believers on this earth for seven years. People get saved during the tribulation period. They do. We have the two witnesses. We have the 144,000. We have angels proclaiming the gospel. They get saved. Some of those people will survive the full seven years. Some non-believers will survive the full seven years. It's at the end of these seven years that those that are living have to be separated from believers from non-believers. The believers get to go into what is called the millennial reign of Christ. They are the sheep. The goats are rejected and they are sent away into punishment. But the sheep get to go to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, look at verse 34. Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, obviously, there's a couple of different ideas with this. One idea here in Matthew chapter 25, we're dealing with how they treated the Jewish people, my brethren, during the tribulation. But there's also the practical application for us. For us. Now, we're talking about works. What, what he's saying here is, I saw your works. Now, is this a works-based salvation? Completely? No. These are not works that save you. These are not works that keep you saved. These are not works that give you something to boast or brag about. These are works because you have been changed on the inside through Christ. You now change how you live on the outside. We talked about this a lot this summer. We did a study on works. We talked about how now that you're born again and saved, it changes how you live. You can't be the same person. You have been changed internally, so that means you live different externally. The way you talk is different. The way you act, what you choose to watch, listen to, be a part of, how you spend your time, you've been changed in Christ. And so what he's saying here is, listen, the way you treated these brethren, my brethren, that was a picture of your works that show a changed heart for me. Not a works-based salvation, but since you're saved, you did something about it. First parable, personal relationship, salvation. Second parable, being a steward. You have responsibilities. Third parable, go out and do something now. Do something. What does that look like? Well, it gives us a great list here, verse 35. Do you know somebody who's hungry? Give them food in the name of Jesus. Do you know somebody thirsty? Give them a drink in the name of Jesus. Do you know a stranger that needs help? Go help him in the name of Jesus. Do you know somebody who does not have the needs of life? Go clothe them in the name of Jesus. Do you know somebody sick? Go visit them in the name of Jesus. Do you know somebody in prison? Encourage them in the name of Jesus. This is what I call practical Christianity. So often people come and say, I want to do something I don't know what to do. Right here's a whole list of what to do. What does this look like practically? I can just give you some examples from my life. I'm not trying to say this to say, look at us. I'm just saying this is what we do. You've heard me mention before, we carry in our cars with us gift cards to McDonald's or Burger King. If we see somebody standing there at the entrance saying, we'll work for food or need food, we can go up, give them a gift card to McDonald's or Burger King and tell them we give this to you in the name of Jesus and love of Jesus and how can we pray for you? Let's help them. Just last Sunday, we were leaving Walmart, coming out of Ottawa. And as we were leaving Walmart, there's a guy that had a sign there that says, need gas. Pulled up to him, what do you need? I need gas. So, Okay, give us the gas container. We went, took the gas container, went and filled it up, brought it back, got him something to eat, gave it to him, and said, we give this to you in the name of Jesus, we give this to you in the love of Jesus, try to start up a conversation. Is there anything we can pray for? And it's just planting seeds. It's just practical Christianity. Is there somebody, a stranger in verse 35, that you don't know well at work or in your neighborhood, and you say they need help? I know it's awkward. Go knock on your door. Hi, my name is James. I just live down the road here. You look like you're doing something. There's something I can help with. They may say no. They may not answer the door. That may seem so weird to the world. Do you not forget that the Bible says we are a peculiar people? We are weird to the world. Do you know somebody's sick? Visit them. Do you know somebody in the nursing home? Visit them. Call them. 
Send them a card. Encourage them. Do you know somebody in prison? Encourage them by writing them. Maybe you don't know anybody in prison. Maybe you have a loved one that has a loved one. Ask for their address and you write them a card and you start out by saying, I do not know you. I've never met you, but I want to let you know that I'm praying for you because I can tell you're going through a difficult time. I got a couple guys who are in prison and I write them faithfully and I just keep giving them scripture to encourage them. Practical Christianity. And why are you doing it? You're doing it for Jesus. No one may see it, no one may know it, no one may even ever hear about it, but you're doing it for Christ. Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you? Jesus said, yeah, when you did it to the brethren, you did it for me. Now flip this around, though. Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting Father, excuse me, fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now we need to stop at verse 41. It always bothers me when someone comes up and they talk about how could a loving God send people to hell? Let's make a couple points on that. First off, number one, the Lord never sends anybody to hell. We choose to reject salvation through Christ. He makes it very clear. We choose to reject it. Hell is the other option. Number two, look at verse 41. Hell was never created for man. Hell was created as an eternal punishment for the enemy, for Satan and his angels. That's your God that loves you. He never intended for you to go there. He intended for you to stay in the Garden of Eden. Verse 42. If I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? I mean, if I saw Jesus hungry, I'd give him a sandwich. If somebody called me up and say, hey, did you hear what happened to Jesus? No, what happened? He fell and broke his arm. He's in the hospital. I'll go visit Jesus. But what happened? Verse 45. He will answer him saying, as surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, verse 46 is very interesting. My new King James has two different words there. Everlasting punishment, eternal life. But if you look in the original Greek, they're the exact same word. We talk about how as a believer, you will live on forever. Well, you also eternally live on forever in hell too by rejecting Christ. That is an eternal, everlasting punishment. Just as the same as there's an eternal, everlasting life. It's the exact same word. We focus so much on the here and now. So much on the here and now. We talk about getting back into work this week. we got Christmas coming up. We have this. We have that. It is so easy to get your eyes off eternity. Please, one more time, look at verse 46. Everlasting punishment. Eternal life. That is where your focus is at. Put these three stories together. The first one, you need to have a personal relationship with Christ. Salvation, a relationship with them. You can't get the oil from somebody else. Number two, the next one, you are a steward. You have responsibilities that God has given you. What are you doing with that? And number three, practical putting it into action. Just going out there and loving people. And it's doing it in the name of Jesus. If I ever try to help somebody, I always try to say, I do this in the name of Jesus. Because I could go give them food. I could go give them money. I could go do that. And they could just think, oh, nice guy. I don't want them to think nice guy. I want them to equate Jesus and love. So I give this to you in the name of Jesus. Sometimes it sparks a conversation. Sometimes they just want it and they want to run. 
But I know at that moment, right then and there, I represented Jesus Christ just like I'm supposed to. And I hopefully planted a seed into somebody for all of eternity. Now, what do we do with this information? The Lord wants you to do something. First thing he wants you to do is know him personally. That's where we've got to start there. Is making sure you understand what it means to have a real relationship with Christ. Look at the people here that we had this morning in these stories. We had the ten bridesmaids. They all looked the same. Only five were in. You also had the three servants. They all looked the same. Don't get lost in the crowd. Do you know Christ and do you know Christ personally and what that means? To really honestly believe in him. Because believe does not just mean understand that he exists. Do you realize there will be no atheists in hell? People in hell will believe in God. People in hell will believe that Jesus Christ was the only way to get to heaven. They will understand that. Philippians makes it clear that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So it's not just saying I believe in God and believe in Jesus. Believing means putting that into action. This changes my life, how I live and what I do. Okay, so do you know him personally? Number two, what responsibilities has God given you? What are you a steward over? And how do you put that into action? I want you to pray about that this week. And then take a week and pray about it. And then when you come back, hopefully next week there's something the Lord's laid on your heart. Now, it may be something just personal and private. Where the Lord said, you know what he's laid on my heart? I need to be a better spouse. I need to be a better leader of my home. I need to love my neighbor. I need to love my coworker. I need to go out there. Maybe it's something like that. Maybe it's something corporately in the church. Take a week and pray about it. Then when you come back next week, say, James, this is what the Lord laid on my heart. This is where I want to get involved. I want to serve. And guess what I'll do? I'll go take some time and pray about that as well. Hook you up with the ministry leaders and say, now let's go do something. I tell you, we don't want to take it and hide it in the ground. We were created to glorify God by what we do. And that's what matters and that what's focused. Understand the eternity of what we're talking about here. Worship team, if you want to come forward. Hey, let's pray this.